the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. City WLCC Brandon. Faith Talk Tampa. Online at Let's Talk Or listen on TuneIn and Odyssey. The following is sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries and is pre recorded. So he's saying, rightfully so, that there are some people who uh, perhaps are very, very sensitive in their conscience. They see all their failures. And they say, I must not be saved. Rather than give me assurance of salvation because of loving the brethren, all I can see is how I don't love the brethren. Have you ever had doubts like that about your salvation? Perhaps you're thinking thoughts along those lines right now. Or maybe you have a friend who's going through a period of doubt. I know I've been there before, more than once. How do we overcome the doubts that can arise when we fail to live as we should? We'll consider that today on Verse by Verse. I'm glad you tuned in today. Pastor Steve Kreloff is leading us through a series of lessons about how to recognize the children of God. Pastor Steve is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. John Sargent was one of the most successful American painters of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. One painting in particular was his pride and joy. I read that even though he was sometimes offered high prices for it, he refused to sell it. That was because whenever he was discouraged and feeling doubtful about his abilities, he would look at that painting and remind himself, I painted that. Then his confidence would return and he could go on painting. One of the three tests of salvation that the Apostle John gave us in 1 John was our love for other Christians. And when we stumble in that area, it can be easy to assume that our momentary failure indicates that we are not truly saved. When that happens, it helps to look back at the times when we did not fail and remind ourselves that we would not have been able to love other believers at all if we were not also believers ourselves. Here's Pastor Steve to continue our series by dealing with a question that we need to be able to answer in our own lives. We begin by posing a question, which is, is it possible for a real Christian, someone who's really been born again, to have nagging doubts about whether they are saved or not? And the answer is absolutely, of course. In fact, for some believers, doubts of salvation can be one of the greatest battles that they face. But why? Why do some believers in Christ struggle with doubts about their salvation? Well, there can be a number of factors that cause this. First of all, sinful behavior can cause one to doubt their salvation. And the reasoning is that one would think, look, if I'm, if I'm really saved, then I wouldn't keep doing something like this. So they begin to wonder, are they really Christians or not? Secondly, Satan's accusations can be the cause of doubts of salvation. Remember, he is the accuser of the brethren, and we often hear him saying to our hearts words like, well, no saved person could possibly do what you do. You can't possibly be saved. Or how can you 
be saved when you don't know the time of your salvation or you were too young to even realize what you were doing. You must not be saved now and words and thoughts to that effect. Third, sometimes Christians doubt their salvation because they just don't understand what God's word says about eternal security, that once you are saved, you can never lose your salvation. They have a deficient understanding of salvation, and so they do something that they think is wrong. It is wrong, and somehow they think that in doing that that act, that deed, they have lost their salvation, and they're not saved anymore. And there are some believers who just fall into doubts of salvation because they go through a very painful experience It's so hurtful, so painful that they question whether God really loves them or not. And they think something along these lines. Why would God treat one of his children this way? Maybe I'm not his child. Maybe he really doesn't love me if he would let me go through this. So the truth of the matter is that doubts of salvation are very real. And they can be very troubling to some who are genuinely converted. And that is precisely why John wrote his first letter. We keep coming back to 1 John 5.13, which says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. So John wrote this letter in order to give assurance to his troubled Christian readers of their salvation. And the way that John goes about doing this is he offers his original readers and us by way of application a series of objective tests, tests whereby we can evaluate our lives and see, do we have evidence in our lives of being transformed by God's grace and salvation? In other words, he gives us some of the basic marks or evidences of those who are saved. Saved people have these marks. Unsaved people never have these marks. And what's interesting about what John does is he keeps repeating these three objective tests. He doesn't just deal with one and then move on to another. He's not quite as orderly in his presentation as, let's say, the Apostle Paul is. So he might deal with one test, go on to another test, then come back to the first test, approach it a different way, then go on to another test. And that's what we have in First John. But essentially, there are three tests. The first test is the test of obedience, Do we really desire to obey God? It doesn't mean that we always obey him, but in our heart of hearts, do we long to obey him? He says this, 1 John 2, 3, by this we know that we have come to know him. This is how you know if you really have come to know Christ, if we keep his commandments, if we desire to observe his commandments, if there is a watchful spirit in our lives that says, I am always on the lookout to do what God's word says, then even when we fail, we understand we have passed the test of obedience because we desire to obey and our lives are characterized by obedience. The second test is the test of sound doctrine. Do we believe the truth about Jesus Christ? And we see that in chapter 2, verse 23, in fact, that whole section. But he says in verse 23, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father. The, The one who understands and embraces the truth that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, John says, is truly 
converted. They have the right understanding of the doctrine of Christ. They understand he's fully God, he's fully man, he's come to pay for our sins. They don't deny that. So it's the test of sound doctrine. And then we began to look at the test of loving other Christians. Now, John has already mentioned this, but now in chapter 3, verse 14, he really emphasizes this. He says, we know that we have passed out of death into life. That is, we know we've passed from being spiritually dead to now we have new life in Christ. How do we know this, John? Because he says, we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. That is to say that when you are converted, we learn from Paul in Romans that the Holy Spirit spreads abroad in our hearts the love of God. Now, John goes on to explain what this kind of love for other Christians looks like. He specifically says in verse 16, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. So we understand this is what love is about. We're the only ones who really understand what love is about because we're the only ones on the planet who really understand what the sacrificial death of Christ was about. So we know love by this. This is what defines love, how Christ acted, that he laid down his life for us. And then John adds, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? He says, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. And when we put that together, put all this together, we know that John is defining love, loving other Christians. That's what he's talking about is this. Number one, it is sacrificial. It is willing to lay down personal desires for the sake of God's people. That could be any number of uh, ways that it could express itself. It is also, secondly, willing to give up material goods to help a brother or a sister in need. If you have some surplus and you see somebody in need and you close your heart against that person, he's talking about specifically a Christian, John says, how does the love of God abide in you? So, love like this is sacrificial. Love like this is willing to give up material goods. And then he says that love like this is specific in action. It's not empty words. It isn't talk. It isn't saying, well, I'll pray for you and I'll do nothing when you have the power to do something. So John has said that if we love other Christians like this, and remember there is a difference between liking and loving Christians. You don't have to like everybody. You do need to love other Christians. But if we If we love other Christians like this, then we can know for certain that we have passed out of spiritual death into spiritual life, meaning that we can know that we're saved. However, listen very closely, there are some Christians who read these words about loving the brethren as the proof of their salvation and the basis of the assurance of their salvation, but it doesn't help them. It doesn't really bring them assurance. In fact, it causes them to fall further into doubts about their salvation. Now, why is that? Well, once again, note this. Because when they examine their lives, they become aware of the many times they have failed to love other Christians. Times when they have been very selfish, times where they have hoarded their possessions, they have been insensitive. They've seen people in need and they've not helped, thoughtless towards others, harsh 
words, oblivious to other people who are hurting. And when they get to thinking about all of these failures and all of these these failings, they are smitten in their hearts, smitten in their conscience, and they feel so guilty. And they look at that and they think that I must have failed this test of loving the brethren, and therefore I must not be saved. Listen to these words of James Boyce and what he has written about this very issue. He wrote, to be sure, John has developed his argument concerning the basis for Christian assurance in a masterly way. But as a pastor, he knows that in spite of all he has said, there will still be some who feel condemned in their own eyes and who are therefore depressed by this and lack assurance. The self-condemnation, he writes, can be due to a number of factors. It can be a matter of disposition. Some people are just more introspective and melancholy than others. He says it may be a question of health. How a person feels inevitably affects how he thinks. It may be due to specific sin, it may be due to circumstances, but whatever the cause, the problem is a real one and is quite widespread. So he's saying, rightfully so, that there are some people who uh, perhaps are very, very sensitive in their conscience, they see all their failures, and they say, I must not be saved. Rather than give me assurance of salvation because of loving the brethren, all I can see is how I don't love the brethren. So... How is a believer, how's a believer supposed to deal with these kinds of doubts? Even with all the objective tests that John has given, we still see so many times, folks, where we have failed to obey the word of God, especially in the area of loving other Christians. And sometimes it leaves us wondering, are we really saved? Well, after dealing with the subject of love in chapter 3, John understands, he knows this church, he knows his people, he has a pastor's heart, and he knows how some of his readers must be feeling, and so he interrupts his argument, and there is an argument here that non-Christians hate the brethren, but true Christians love the brethren. He interrupts that in order to give inspired pastoral help by telling us how to deal with these kinds of doubts of salvation when we see so much failure in our lives. And the way that John does this is he takes our love for the brethren, weak and imperfect as it is, with all of its failings, all of its insensitivities, and he uses, note this, what love we do have and do show as the basis for giving us the assurance of our salvation, and our relationship with the Lord. That is to say that John calls us to focus not on our failures, but on the evidence that we do see in our lives. And so therefore, what John does is he, in the remainder of this chapter, he teaches us that loving the brethren brings assurance of salvation in three ways. He's just going to hammer home the assurance that we can have because of loving the brethren. And we want to look at the first way that assurance of salvation is brought to us by our love of the brethren. Number one, we see it assures us that we are of the truth. If you're taking notes, you'll see loving the brethren also brings assurance in the sense that it assures us of answered prayer, and it assures us, thirdly, of having an intimate spiritual union with Christ. We look at the first way that loving the brethren assures us of our salvation because it assures us that we are of 
the truth. That's the language that John uses. Let's look at verse 19. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him. Now, John begins by telling us that if we look at our lives, and we must because we're given objective tests. We have to look at our lives to see if we pass these tests. But if we look at our lives, and we must, and we see then that we do love other Christians in a way that is genuine, in that we do give. And there are times we do sacrifice for the sake of other believers. And there are times that we do give our energy and our time and our material resources to others. Then by this kind of love, John says, we will know that we are of the truth. Now, what does John mean by this unique expression, we are of the truth? Well, the the way that it reads literally in the Greek text is this, out of the truth we exist. Out of the truth we exist. And what John means by this phrase is that the source of our spiritual lives is from God, and specifically the truth of God. In other words, we believe the truth, which is the gospel message, and we were born again. We are out of the truth. That's how we exist. We exist because we came to the truth. The truth gripped our hearts. We've been born again by the truth of the word of God. This is simply another way of saying that by loving the brethren, we prove that we're born again. We prove that we're of God. We prove that we are true believers. And so John's point is that if your life is characterized by loving other Christians, then this is the absolute evidence that you have been born again. Because unbelievers do not in any way love God's children He's already pointed that out. In fact, they, he said they hate the brethren. They don't love God's people. And it is this knowledge that we are of the truth, John says, that assures our hearts. And, and notice he says that assures our hearts before the Lord. He says that in verse 19. Look at that again. We will know by this that we are of the truth and we'll assure our hearts before him, meaning before the Lord. So if you can look at your life And you can see that you have loved God's people in deed and in truth, not in perfection, but there is evidence that you have loved in deed and in truth. And scripture says you have a settled confidence before him. Now let's consider what John is saying here because this is actually a tremendous statement. Before him means we stand before him in the sense of accountability. The Greek word that he uses for assure, at least that's how it's translated in my New American Standard Bible. Assure means to persuade. That's its basic meaning, to persuade. Our hearts are persuaded that we know him. In other words, loving other Christians as evidence of our salvation persuades us that we are true believers and that we can stand before God with absolute confidence. Now, what's interesting is one examines the nuances of this particular Greek word that usually means persuade, it it is that also it carries the thought of, of resting, being at rest or to reassure in the sense of being calm and and tranquil. Now what's so interesting and really remarkable about this is that John is teaching us that loving the brethren is able to put our hearts, which in this context, hearts simply means our conscience, at rest. Our hearts are at rest. We're not troubled. And John adds, it's at rest before him, meaning before God. Now think about this for a moment. 
most people, when they think of standing before the Lord or having any kind of accountability before him, are terrified. Absolutely terrified to be in the presence of God because God is perfectly holy and we are absolutely wretched and sinful. This was the experience of many people we read about in the Bible. For example, in Isaiah chapter 6, the Old Testament prophet, when given a vision of God's holiness, he said, I am a man of unclean lips. Even the great prophet Isaiah recognized when he gazed upon God's holiness that he was so sinful. And it was after God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus chapter Three, through that burning bush experience, we read that Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Moses had a glimpse of God in the sense of the bush would not burn. In fact, God said, take off your sandals. The place that you are standing is holy ground. Moses hid his face. He was afraid to look at God. But John here says that the Christian today who recognizes that he does love other Christians persuades his heart that he's been converted and therefore he is not frightened to be accountable to God and to know that someday he'll actually physically stand in his presence. He knows that he can stand in God's presence because Christ, by his amazing grace and his love, has paid for every one of his sins and therefore, John says, his heart is calm. It's at rest. He's ready to die. He's ready to be transported to the presence of God immediately. However, Sad to say, and this is really the point of the passage, this is not true of every Christian. Because as we've already noted, there are some believers who look at their failures to love other Christians and they get very introspective and this leads to feelings of extreme guilt so that they feel condemned and they question how they could ever possibly think that they were saved when they fail so often. And John knows that this is a real problem in many believers. And so he goes on to say in verse 20, In whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart, and he knows all things. Essentially, that's what he means. But now let's analyze it. Now let's dig in and see what what exactly is John saying by these words. Because what he has to say here is not only important, folks. It may very well be the truth that frees you from having doubts about your salvation. So listen closely. John recognizes, because he probably experienced this himself, that there are times when we feel very convicted about not showing love to another Christian. I mean, there are times in my life I'm convicted over this. There are times in your life, every Christian has that. If they don't admit that, they're they're just not telling the truth and they ought to be convicted about lying. So John recognizes there are times when all of us feel very convicted about not showing love to another believer. And when we do this, conviction means we hear our conscience rise up and accuse us with thoughts Like, how can you be a true Christian when you're so selfish and unloving? Condemns us. Or if you really love that person, you wouldn't have spoken so harshly to them. You would have given them some money to help a need. How can you, you claim to be a Christian, but you don't act like one. How can you really be a Christian? I've had that question rattle around in my head a time or two, and I'm pretty sure you have too. But there is a solution. We'll dig deeper into that solution on the next verse-by-verse. 
I'm glad you could be here today for this part of Pastor Steve Kreloff's series of lessons about how to recognize the children of God. Pastor Steve is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. If you're in or near Clearwater and would like to hear Pastor Steve in person and find out more about Lakeside, the address is 1893 Sunset Point Road. Find out more at lakesidechapel.com. Verse by Verse is one of the ministries at Lakeside, but we still depend in large part on the faithful generosity of listeners like you who pray and give so that we can pay for the production and airing of these daily radio Bible classes. If the Lord is speaking to you about this, we have giving information on our website, versebyverseradio.org. You'll also find our audio archives on the website so that you can catch up on any previous broadcasts. That's versebyverseradio.org. This is Jerry Peterson. I have a friend who is a retired policeman. He lost a leg in the line of duty just below the knee. While he maintains a wonderful sense of humor and walks with almost no limp at all, he admits that his missing leg sometimes hurts intensely. It's called phantom pain. False guilt is like phantom pain. The Bible says that our love for other believers is how people will know that we are saved. If we sometimes fail in exhibiting that love, we do need to confess. Not to regain salvation, but to regain relationship. Romans 8 says that nothing can separate us from God's love, but sin will hinder the relationship. When we confess, 1 John 1, 9 says that God will forgive us and make us clean again so that we can continue in fellowship with Him. If we ever doubt our salvation because we don't always show genuine love for other Christians, we can find assurance in the verse. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.